Um, and I thought, well, we're talking about, we've been talking about self-compassion for so long. Yes. Now we're talking about self-love. Maybe it's, this is time to talk about self-fidelity, being faithful to oneself. And, and then I started thinking, well, it felt really powerful to me, this idea of kind of cultivating or renewing faithfulness in ourselves knowing that there's these shared elements of our nature that we're all caring that we're all creative we're all vulnerable we're all worthy we're all playful and i suddenly realized that as we cultivate this faithfulness to those elements within ourselves knowing that they are shared in a way we're we're reconnecting to others and we're almost um regenerating faith in each other which i think is so desperately needed when you look at how polarized the world is And this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. Hello and welcome to the Job Hunting Podcast. My name is Renata Benadi. I am the host of the Job Hunting Podcast. And today I have interviewed my friend Cassandra Goodman. Cassandra has had a very interesting and global career as an executive working worldwide for blue chip companies like GE and Bupa. She now works for Thrive Global, but is also developing her own business. And she has just finished writing an amazing book. I spent this interview with her discussing the ideas in the book Self-Fidelity and how I believe it resonates with professionals that are job hunting and planning for their careers ahead of them. I would really recommend that you have a close look at her ideas and consider purchasing this book. She's giving us a special code so that when you purchase her book, the uh, book will come to you um, with free shipping. I will put the links below where you can find the book for sale, the code so that when you purchase the book, you uh, don't need to pay shipping. But I also have a promotion for you, which is I have 10 copies, signed copies to give away to those of you who want to enroll for the Reset Your Career program, which is an on-demand program plus 31 days of action plan for those that are resetting their careers. And I think it's the perfect time to acquire that on-demand short course and action plan now that we're going into this festive season and if you don't want to lose momentum you want to continue to uh, work on your career at your own pace you know we've spoken about this before in previous podcasts recently about how you can schedule it in uh, no matter what time available you have during this holiday season and the reset your career program really can help you um, keep pace keep a routine keep discipline and keep motivated so if you want to purchase that program, the first 10 people that will purchase that program and email me to say they listen to this podcast and they purchase the program, I will send you a copy, a signed copy from Cass. I will also give two copies away to those who um, give this podcast a five-star iTunes review, which I love getting and it's so important for this podcast. So please give this podcast on iTunes a very warm review if you've been listening all year or you've just landed here and you enjoyed this episode 
episode and contact me by email. Again, in the episode show notes, there are full details of where to find me. If you prefer to DM me, I'm on every social media channel, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just find me and say, I've left you a review. Uh, here are my details and I will send you a book. The two first people that leave me uh, a review will get a signed copy of Self Fidelity. Now, um, this book, as I said, is uh, an exciting new development for Cassandra's um, career, and I believe it's one of the best books I have ever read. <laughs> I was so impressed uh, when she gave me an early copy to read, and I think you will be too. There are so many books out there on leadership, on self-development, professional development, this should be top of the list for 2021. And I'm not just saying this because uh, I know the author. I wouldn't say this if it wasn't a good book. <laughs> I care about my followers and my clients way too much. And I can definitely say that this is a book that will get, get you out of your head and get those sort of um, self-doubt self and... Um, voices out of your head and keep you more in tune with what you actually want to achieve and it's so important for you to know that especially if you are in this time of your career where the silver lining of being without a job is that you can invest in yourself make sure that you purchase this book and um, read it carefully. It's one of those books where you can go back to it um, over and over again. It doesn't need to be read in one go, in my view. I hope she agrees with me. Um, you can just, um, when you get the book, you will see that the chapters will address separate issues. So when you're having uh, trouble with one specific issue, you can just go to that chapter and that will help you. Anyhow, it's a long one, so I'll stop here. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and most importantly, join the newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. There's a link below, again, for you to subscribe to that, and I'll send you a weekly newsletter with the episodes and some articles for you to read. I curate them specially for you. Bye for now. Be well. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I am so sorry. I've been sending Zoom links to your other email account. Oh. Sorry, my bad. No, no, that, that's probably my bad because I probably sent you an email from that email account. But uh. I went to the meeting invitation and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the, the meeting invitation I've updated with the Zoom um, earlier this morning. Um, oh, but that, that oh. went to that email as well. Anyway. Okay. You're looking good. Oh, thank you. Is the light okay? It's a bit dark in here, but... No, the light's lovely. Okay. You are in a... Um, um, co-working space. Co -work I gather your neighbours are back. <laughs> They're back. <laughs> you can't hide away in your neighbours. Can't hide anymore. How's anymore? Oh, lockdown. So they're back. And the, the Wi-Fi at home is so patchy that um, it's just much better for me to be in here. Yeah, your Wi-Fi is patchy? Yeah, it such, is. Such a nice neighbourhood. What the hell? Yeah, and we're on NBN and everything, but mm. I just, maybe it's just the traffic, everyone working from home in my area, but yeah. um, 
often things just drop out. So, yeah. but here the the Wi-Fi is really good, so I don't have any issues. It's probably better not to be interrupted by family and kids and all of that. And this is work time and me time. You I time. get much more done here. Self fidelity time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I had a hell of a week. Oh, I had a hell of a week. I, this is my. I don't know, 57th, 58th uh, interview for the podcast. And only three times I've stuffed up the interview. This is the third. So the first time I, I was late to my own interview <laughs> with Div Pillai. And she's a good friend. And I could tell by her face she wasn't very happy with me. Uh, and then we warmed up and, you know, it ended up being okay. Then the second time it was my my dear friend and mentor, Jeff Morgan, the most sort of high profile guest I've had. Sorry, you, you will be too one day. <laughs> <laughs> but I kid you not, I was so nervous to interview him. So he is the second half of Talent 2 and Morgans and Banks and, you know. Oh, I have to listen to that episode. I've yeah, like listened to a few, but I haven't heard that one. The day we booked the interview, like which was months ahead through EAs and all of that, they were cutting cement outside my house. Oh God! <laughs> and it was we 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 kind of squeezed it in in between very heavy machinery, sort of. And I had to go outside and beg them, you know, when are you taking a break? Because <laughs> I have this very important oh. interview I have to book. And this is the third time because I I wanted to finish your book, but I struggle with reading on my iPad because I have terrible dry eyes. I have blepharitis. Right. And my family, it's not just me. Nobody at home reads from screens. We all buy proper books. But I hate reading from my iPad with a passion. Well, I will I'm happy to drop a book around to you on the weekend. Uh, I'll, bring it I'll, to you. I'll come and pick it up. This is how much I want the book. <laughs> I will come to you. I will pay you cash. Just You don't need to pay me, Dad. No. It's a gift. Now Daddy, so- you know I want to actually book order them for gifts. This is the best so best Christmas gift, I think. Well, this is what the, my main client, the chief people officer at a company called West Fund, he's basically buying a copy for his whole team. Um, yeah. So I'm putting them in the mail to him next week. But I can happy to drop a box okay. around to you. You just tell me oh, how many and yes. um, I can invoice you and Let's there'll do- be an extra one in there, which is a gift for you, of course. Well, I need mine this weekend because, I, you know, I just need to finish the damn book. But I had my car impounded. I oh, no. I did. I broke my shower head. So now there is like this. <laughs> it's I don't know how I managed to break my shower head. It's like this heavy sort of water just coming out of a tube. But like this, imagine like a jet. <laughs> <laughs> and it hurts my scalp. Like I've tried to oh, wash my hair. God. It's either not enough pressure or too much pressure. And coming because the shower head's broken. So it's just a, yeah. You've had a, a week of home maintenance issues. Yeah, uh, and I spent so much money getting my car out of the place thingy. Plus, not only it was expensive to get it out, it had a ticket on it. So in addition to paying, I still pay, had to pay the ticket. It was the most expensive medical appointment at Epworth Richmond I've ever had. 
Oh my god! Now, if you ever go to Epworth, Richmond, people, it's clear way after four thirty. If you leave at four forty-five, your car will be gone. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's 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 scary stuff. Having a car impounded. Did you think it was stolen at first? Uh, yes, I'm a Brazilian. Of course, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, "Oh, that's fine." It's no, I knew, easy. I knew it was, it was impounded straight away because, you know, Bridge Road at 5 p.m. is busy as, and I was like, okay, of course. And I always park inside Epworth, Richmond, but it was full. I was running late. I was going. I was going to a birthday party with a friend, and the birthday party was me and the friend. You don't want to be late. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we're not going to the commons, you know, the Ormond College. Yes. We're not going there, my friend. I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's like, okay, I will cook for you. I'm like, no, it's your birthday. I still want to celebrate. So it was, yeah, a bit of a, a, bit of a week. Oh. I forgot her birthday present at home. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know one of those weeks? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do so, know those weeks. Well, hopefully has, next week will be a better week. And they said, oh, I'm going to wake up at six. You can wake up with me and finish the book. And I'm like, no, I really need to sleep. I just Yeah, I'm glad you slept. Sleep in. <laughs> I'm really glad that you slept. And yeah. um, there'll be plenty of time to read the book in hard copy. So yeah. um, we can figure out how to get you a copy this weekend. Um, you know how much I love it. I was so impressed with your book. So well, I've impressed. got your your endorsements in there. It's one of the. Is it? Yeah, of course. Oh, I hope that's okay. You did say that was no, okay. No, no, no. I thought it was going to be on Facebook. <laughs> going to be on no, both. No, good, great. It's going to be it. on both. I didn't. I I put. I summarized it down. Where is it? Um, oh, I didn't fancy. put the whole. Thing because in the end, I, I wrote a very to... long one. I could write uh, an essay about it. Here it says, I actually started reading Self Fidelity with a sense of responsibility to my friend to provide her feedback and support. A few hours later, I was sure this was my new favorite book in the world. This is a book I will buy by the dozen and give to as many people as I can. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there <true>. you go. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Thank you, Fresh. The actual print version. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I got some really generous endorsements, which is such a lovely, yeah. unexpected thing to happen. Wow, you did so well. And it was so funny. I um, The positive side of this week is I signed up a few new clients. Yay, right. so I will be busy all summer. Um, and one of them is quite an introvert. Um, and we're sort of thinking about two of them, actually. I, I said this twice. You know, usually when I'm asking people to network a bit more and touch base with their connections I say to them instead of just sitting down and having a coffee just let's come up with a project maybe you want to interview them for uh, an article or you want to add them to an advisory board an informal advisory mm. board for a project or maybe you want to write a book actually forget you don't want to forget that you don't want to write a book everybody's writing a book don't say that you want to write a book <laughs> <laughs> I need to, because that's kind of part of my, I have something that I go through it, like um, something I wrote down. Is yeah. I have to delete that. Otherwise, I just keep reading or you want to write a book and I want to delete that because I just think that too many people are writing books and we don't need books. We may need articles or podcast yeah. interviews, but you needed to write this book 
for us. Thank you. Not for oh. you probably too, but yeah, this was for a me, good yeah. I mean, it was, yes. It was something in me that had to come out yeah, that like was very clear. It was like a baby and I had a little bit of a scare. It must have been about 18 months ago. I found a lump in my breast and I had this moment where the doc, my local doctor was quite concerned and sent me for an kind of a, an urgent um, full check ultrasound mammogram and I had this moment where the first thing I thought was, I can't get cancer, I haven't finished my book. <laughs> I think I think we went out for drinks right after that. You were very, yes. you know, yeah. It was a real moment. Where I think yeah. this is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's so good to have it done and in the world, and it's all a bit surreal, you know. So let's let's begin by talking about your career, so we can find a path to where this idea for the book began. Tell me yes. about your career and where you started professionally. Yes. So. My career is a bit of a, a windy road, let's say. So I actually started off in manufacturing. Uh, what happened was that I went to uh, the University of Technology planning to enrol in a business degree and I saw this little poster that said manufacturing management degree, scholarships available, 30 spots. And I thought, scholarship? <laughs> uh, <I'll laughs> manufacturing? That. Sounds interesting. And I actually managed to get into that selective degree and it was the best thing because I covered all my basic business subjects but I also got this manufacturing grounding which was so practical and great you know I learned how to do welding and thermal cutting and I I spent my summers by a 2,000 ton press in steel cap boots you know figuring out a system of maintenance and it was really tangible input output I think I really learned a lot through starting my career in manufacturing So, you know, I was a production assistant and an inventory manager for a while. Mm -hmm. And then um, I found myself being pulled towards kind of marketing analytics roles. So I spent some time in a marketing role with GE, which was great because I I got to facilitate GE's three-year strategy planning process Mm -hmm. um, as part of that role, which I learned a lot through that about what good strategy looks like, how good strategy comes together, which was a key skill. Um, And then... I found myself being pulled towards kind of customer-oriented improvement roles. And uh, at the time at GE, they were launching Six Sigma, which was its methodology for continuous improvement. And it was based on data. It was customer-driven. It was all about adding value and making a difference. And I was really drawn to these roles and ended up climbing the ranks from black belt to master black belt and then became quality leader which is kind of the top of the tree so to speak for lean six sigma folks and i uh, had this great role leading lean six sigma across europe middle east and africa for one of the ge businesses and got to travel and live overseas for a period of three years and yeah that was all fabulous so i had eight great years at ge and then i left ge as part were of you the- there when jack welch was still yes. ceo yes. wow okay well, I think towards the end of his um, range, so I was there 2000 to 2008. So yeah. it was mainly transition, out, but I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was a transition period. I have to check my facts, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it was that um, emails um, was the, the primary leader during my time. Okay. Uh, but certainly, you know, Jack was really behind the Lean Six Sigma movement initially. And mm-hmm. so there was his influence throughout my time. Okay. Um, and so. And then he uh, moved on from GE? Yeah, then I moved on. So they smashed two businesses together, as GE tends to do. And um, at the time, there was a 
a redundancy on the table for me and I'd just been divorced and um, it was, you know, a significant sum of money back then when redundancies weren't capped like they are today. And I said, you know what, it's been eight great years. I think I'll take the money. And, you know, went on my way and um, spent a bit of time in different roles in different organisations and really uh, my next long stint was with Bupa where I ended up um, uh, establishing the first customer experience human-centred design team mm -hmm. and realised at a certain moment that I'd spent all this time focused on customer experience and continuous improvement always with a customer focus and I realised that really my passion was around the employee experiences that underpin great customer experience and, and the employee elements of great commercial outcomes. And mm -hmm. so there was a moment where I saw this new role get created at Bupa, which was Global Director of Employee Experience. Which had Is Bupa a superannuation or insurance? No, I forget. It's a healthcare company. So it's a healthcare company. private health yeah, insurance. Yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a global healthcare company and... They had 86,000 people and, and so I found myself in this incredible role which was a global director of employee experience which encompassed responsibility for their global wellbeing program with 86,000 people across the globe. And I learned so much at that time about how do you design uh, a strategy for great employee experience and great employee health outcomes that's adaptable across a diverse globally distributed workforce. So that was a great experience that that was probably the the pinnacle in terms of my leadership roles having spent that time in that role and you were in New York at the time so I spent quite a bit of time in New York when I was with GE because their headquarters were in New York mm -hmm. um, so I have spent time in New York um, in my professional life but um, my time at Bupa was actually mainly between Melbourne and London because they're right. a London headquartered organization yeah okay and various parts of Europe that was that was one of the you know, the highlights of my corporate career, having worked with so many multinationals that I have had, you know, this wonderful experience of travelling and, and going to all sorts of incredible roles, both yes. in my time at GE, across Europe, Middle East and Africa, and then um, with, with Bupa. Um, it's been really, I feel very um, lucky to have had tr the business travel that I have had. I am older than you, and I don't know if you've reached this point in your career or your life yet. When you look back and you think, "Was that really me?" <laughs> I can't. Oh, it's yeah. been so long, you know, all that traveling that I did, and it seems like such a long time ago. I think being in it Australia like as well, yeah, and I think Australia being so far away from where I used to, you know, fly a lot to in my previous lives. Yeah. It does feel very surreal. You know, I had a photo pop, pop up on my Facebook feed that says, you know, six years ago you were in Dubai and I was in Dubai, this, you know, amazing uh, conference in this incredible hotel and I took the photo of the sunrise out of my hotel window and I was like, was that really me? Was I really there? It, it is very surreal now that I'm more, you know, grounded here in Melbourne with my young children and less traveling of course with for all of us at the moment well now covid i think this is the life you know even if um people were planning to um be fifo as we call it fly in fly out no more no more mm. lots of zooming and being creative and how we connect and how did you um transition to settling down in melbourne well, I lived in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney and uh, what happened was that I met my now husband and he was in Melbourne and we, you know, dated with me in Sydney and he, he was here in Melbourne and um, 
then the honest story is that my lease came up in my apartment in Paddington. I got the letter in the mail and I was like, oh, he seems like a nice guy. Maybe I'll see if I can move in with him. Oh, God. <laughs> I moved in with Andrew yes. here in Melbourne. You know, must have been about 12 years ago now. And then, you know, we, we, we got married and now we've got two beautiful kids. And so it was definitely a good move <laughs> to, uh, to uh, have that, that conversation. Hey, my lease is up for... <laughs> Can I move in with you? Yeah, you've got, yeah. You got some room for another. <laughs> I have a very similar story. I, I invited myself to move in with Andre and he said, yes, I'd love that, but we have to get married. Oh. He's, he's Catholic. <laughs> My mother will have a hissy fit. And I'm like, okay, I don't mind. Let's get married. <laughs> Very similar to our non-traditional proposal. Yeah. <laughs> it lasted. You know, we've been together yeah. for yeah, twenty-seven years now. Hmm. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. So, okay, so now here you are in Melbourne, still in a corporate career. Well, I'm I'm what they call, I suppose, having a portfolio career. So I work. Um, for Thrive Global, the organisation that's headquartered out of New York and, and founded and led by Arianna Huffington. Uh, and for Thrive, I am an executive coach and a facilitator. So I work with and for Thrive Global, but I'm also growing my own company and I've been doing this for two years now. Um, you know, two years ago, I kind of made the decision that I, I want to work across multiple organisations and with, with leaders in multiple organisational systems and so, yeah, it's been two years now and I'm, I'm really enjoying this opportunity to work with lots of different people in lots of different places. And um, I think certainly it would have been really difficult for me to have written the book that I've written and then it's just been released. Um, I don't know if that would have been possible if I'd been in a full-time senior executive role. You know, I, I did start writing the book back when I was a, a full-time senior executive. I'd get up at 5 a.m. and write for an hour and then go to the gym and come home and get the kids ready for school and go to work. And, you know, it, it was full on. And I yeah. certainly started the book, you know, three years ago when I was still working full-time. But to get it actually finished and out in the world and to be now doing the work that I want to do, bringing the concepts of the book to life, I am um, mainly working for myself. Yes. And I want to move into the book and for you to explain um, what self-fidelity means. But before we move into that, can you tell us what you think your strengths are, your key strengths yes. that carried through the that career, that successful that career that you've had? I really am keen to sort of understand what you believe are your key strengths as a mm. an executive and now a business owner? Yeah. So I think it's been interesting because it's probably needed the reflection of the book and a little bit of space between me and the corporate world to really appreciate my strengths. I, I certainly found that, at least in my career, um, at the senior levels of organisations, there was this sense that, um, perhaps my strengths weren't always strengths, that, but in fact, in the eyes of some leaders, they could be seen as liabilities because one, one of my key strengths is this, this caring nature, this I care deeply. <laughs> I care deeply about the work I do. I care yeah. deeply about the people I work with. And I suppose this deep care that I would say is actually part of our essential nature. I think we're all deeply caring, connected, compassionate 
you might say, loving beings as humans. And mm. I, I certainly felt the pressure in my corporate roles to uh, suppress that. Mm. So I would say that one of my strengths is caring. And, you know, I had leaders give me that direct feedback uh, early in my career saying, you know, Cassie, the problem with you is that you care too much. If you yeah. ever want to make it into an executive role, you've got to learn how to care less. You know, mm-hmm. I had that feedback. And I think I'm really happy and proud to say that I was able to make it into those senior executive roles without having to lose my <laughs> caring nature, without having to, you know, drink a can of Harden Up every morning and lock my heart away and so yeah that, that's one of my key strengths and I think the other key strength is what um, would be described as positive in positive psychology is zest so I don't know if you've come across the um, oh the you VIA. told me you told yeah. me about zest yes I, yeah. did, I have done this VIA zest is not my top strength now <laughs> well, everyone's different right and yes we all have some element of zest, but for me, it's my number one signature strength. And really? for me, zest, I experience zest is this kind of blend of vitality, it's this sense of agency that, you know, I, I can make an impact, that I, I have the capacity to, to, to improve the world around me. It's, mm-hmm. it's this sense of agency, vitality, and also a courage because zest is part of the cluster of strengths under, clustered under courage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people do tell me that I, I tend to, you know, kind of, let's say, leap before I look, <laughs> which is, I think, a strength that can also, of course, be um, a liability in certain situations, but it, it served me well in my career. <laughs> Certainly did. And um, although I think also um, when I met you, I felt the zest. You didn't have to explain zest to me. You know, it's something that, you know, people feel when they're with you and the, the caring nature that you have as well. Um, but what um, struck me is that that caring nature, because you're so intelligent, uh, you're able to systematize it and you create ways of helping people by intellectualizing it and then applying it. And I think that's what you've done with self-fidelity, right? Mm. You've well, created, that's a very you've created kind a book. thing to say, Renata. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me. Um, well, maybe because that's kind of what I do in a way as well, um, not about self-fidelity, but, you know, uh, my favorite page in the book is page 71, I'm not sure if that's the same page in the printed version, um, but that's where I found this is me. This is what I do. I help people deal with this bit. Um, But I, I, I like people like you who see a problem in this case, you know, of a caring nature of how people are struggling with work and life and not only care and sometimes suffer with them, but then decide to create um, some sort of mechanism to support them. I, create, I created a framework to support people go through career advancement, job hunting, mm. because I, I see it clearly and I can see others don't. Yes. Right? And I think, yes. So what I found in writing, writing the book, which I you know, mm-hmm. have here, is that... Um, oh, my God, it's thick. Can you just put it thick. on the <laughs> It is a good book. Uh, it's 80,000 words. And wow. I, at multiple times in writing, I checked with people, is it too long? Should I cut yeah. it back? And everyone's like, no, 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 <laughs> cut it down. It's like, okay, it's all there, all 80,000 words. And yeah. um, 
I've been told by lots of different people that that whilst it might look thick, it's an easy read. And I've even had it one is, it is, it um, is. person say, I finished reading your book and I'm going back to the beginning to start all over again. So um, whilst it's thick, I am confident that it's not a heavy read. No, no, it's not. No. But, but let's talk about self-fidelity. Let's start with definition because not many people definition. understand we've had this discussion before are you sure you want to call to call this book self-fidelity yeah. and then I read it and then I was completely fine oh. <laughs> with what it is but let's start with definition yeah and and it was it's t- taken me many years to figure out what what is the essence of I want to that I want to say in this book and the book has kind of evolved and gone through many different iterations, like over 10 or 12 different titles, covers, you know. It's been really um, a true creative process that has just kind of emerged. And there was a certain moment, must have been about six months ago, uh, where I actually had finally got the kids to school after the first lockdown and I'd been writing, writing, writing with homeschooling and all the craziness and I had this this day of peace when the kids were back at school and I sat down I thought okay I've been writing 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 let me really just meditate let me really think what is the essence of what I want to say and I really came quite quickly within a few hours okay this is about being true to yourself this is about being faithful to your essence to your essential nature your shared essential nature I believe we have this shared essential nature which which is good and which is enduring through our whole lives. And I realised it was what I wanted to say is that we can practice, we can cultivate the capacity to be faithful to our true nature. And then I Googled, you know, true to oneself, faithful, self-faithful, and then I thought, well, faithful is fidelity, and I Googled self-fidelity, and I was like, well, no one's using this term. I found one reference to it in a in a fairly obscure text, but... Uh, it was clear that this was kind of space. Um, and I thought, well, we're talking about, we've been talking about self-compassion for so long. Yes. Now we're talking about self-love. Maybe it's this is time to talk about self-fidelity, being faithful to oneself. And and then I started thinking, well, it felt really powerful to me, this idea of kind of cultivating or renewing faithfulness in ourselves knowing that there's these shared elements of our nature, that we're all caring, that we're all creative, we're all vulnerable, we're all worthy, we're all playful. And I suddenly realised that as we cultivate this faithfulness to those elements within ourselves, knowing that they are shared, in a way we're, we're reconnecting to others and we're almost um, regenerating faith in each other, which I think is so desperately needed when you look at how polarised the world is. I mean, you just look at what happened with the... US election and, and how it, it's such a polarizing time whereas it's this us and them and this um, this sense of otherness and um, you know separation that that tends to get more and more amplified over time and so I thought th- this feels right to me this idea that uh, we can renew a refresh reconnect with our own nature and restore our faith in ourselves and, and almost as a byproduct, actually restore our faith in each other. That that would be my ultimate wish for, for these concepts. Yes. And it's such an evolution. I mean, I, you know, maybe this is going to be too much of an intellectual discussion for the podcast. We might have to go out for drinks again. <laughs> But <laughs> no you know, if you think about 
what faith means to a lot of people and how people relate to the concept of faith. And um, it's all about the other um, and service to others. And we have grown up in a, a structure of morality and education and religion and education where we don't really pay attention to what we want. And we then go into the workforce with that mentality as well. And then we reach Absolutely. our 30s. Most of my clients are in their 40s or 50s. And then we go, what do we do now? You know, um, this, this is not what I wanted to do. And then they start now thinking about what they want to do for that tail end of their career. And some really struggle with the lost time and struggle with envisioning a preferred future. What I like about the book is when you open it and you see the content, even if you struggle with the sense of self and you think, what if I don't like myself? What if I don't even know myself? Uh, your, your chapters will address that question that is in people's head already, yeah. right? People will immediately think, I think they will, um, based on, you know, what my clients are like. But then you open the book and you're like, oh, okay, it will address all of the issues that I feel about myself. Right? Yeah, thank you. I, I've You've been, done that I was, structure really well. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, it, it literally took me three years to find this structure, right? Mm. And I borrowed and combined elements of structures from the great teachers that I've learned from. So the structure of the book, is in four four main parts. And there's a foundation section to start off because there are a lot of concepts such as what does it mean to be fully present, um, this idea of the voices in our head and that we actually, the voices in our head do not represent the real us, that our true nature is a way of being that transcends all of those voices and actually our true nature is a state of being that those voices in our heads cloud and pull us away from. And so I, I say that, you know, trying to figure out who is the real me by listening to the voices in our heads is like a dog trying to chase its tail. You know, we just go round and round in circles, we get more dizzy and confused. And it's, you know, it's a path just to, I would say, more, more suffering. So how do we start to tune in to this way of being, this essential nature that sits behind all those voices in our head? And so I had, I've really taken care and it took several rewrites of the book and feedback from very generous early reviewers to just take people through it. You know, some of the early versions were perhaps a little um, more dense up front. So I really tried to take people step by step. Okay, what does it mean to be present? What does it mean to wake up? What does it mean to start to familiar? Familiarize yourself with the voices in your head. How do you learn to turn down the volume of those voices so you can get on with the important work of showing up as the best version of you at work and at home? And then from there, I cover the, the core practices of letting be, really letting, letting be these qualities within ourselves, accepting them, no longer suppressing them. You know, I talk about, you know, trying to suppress our true nature is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Um, you know, there's only so long you can do that. And if we suppress these elements of our true nature, in my experience, they kind of 
um, emerge in the most the least opportune times and often in exaggerated and unhelpful way so it's really about letting be these parts of ourselves it's about letting go of all the things that get in the way and you know I, I love what you say when you look at the the contents page you get a sense for where you're going because there's all these sections on letting go of the the limiting beliefs that I've come across and I've battled with in my own life so letting go of all those limiting beliefs and then uh, letting in what we need to be nourished so letting in the things that we need to uplift us to um, invest in our own vitality and our own well-being and the language I use there is, is non-negotiables um, amongst other things so yeah what 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 emerged in this beautiful four part I, I represent it as this kind of infinity symbol where you're you're waking up you're letting be you're letting go and you're letting in as this continuous learning loop, which I think is a loop that we just keep working through for our entire lives. Yeah. I really do believe that self-fidelity is a lifelong practice. You, you're funny that you mentioned that loop because we started this conversation talking about my terrible, you know, week. And I, I was into that loop so much. And, and um, so I was like getting my car from the pound and then just saying, okay, I'm going to see my friend Patricia and we're going to have fun. And then something bad happened. Like, oh, I forgot her birthday present. And then I would I say, oh, no, we're going to have dinner and we're going to feel good. And then I broke my shower head. <laughs> Yeah, but I remember because I had you in my mind. It was last night, and I was going to interview today. I had that loop in my head, like, no, I need to get out of this. And then, <laughs> but I think you know, if you think about that lifelong learning, not just that moment in time, like twenty four hours, like I did. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? It's yes. really making that loop so that you grow and not feel trapped in it. Yes, it's like an adaptive, I think of it as an adaptive cycle. And so you can in any moment think, okay, what do I need to do right now? Do I need to let be, do I need to wake up? Because often we're spending our day on autopilot, right? We're so caught up in the story in our head. We're actually disconnected from the true reality. We're, we're living in the virtual reality in our head. So maybe we just need to wake up. You know, I often find myself at the dinner table. I don't know why, but I tend to you know, become triggered with my family at night. Let's say, for example, no one asked me how my day was and I I find myself in this alternative reality that no one actually loves me because they haven't asked me about my day, which is just a total lie. But the voices in my head can, are really convincing. And so maybe I just need to wake up and, and realize, okay, I've got this story in my head. No one's asked me about my day. And that um, the story I'm telling myself is that, that none of these beautiful humans love me. I know that's not true. I'm going to wake up to the moment I'm in and share this beautiful meal with my family as an example of where you can just notice you've been pulled away from the reality, from the story in your head, wake up to actually what's happening. So you can use it in the moment. Um, in that example where you realise you've forgotten your friend's birthday present, you know, that's a great moment to let go, right? Because we know that actually it's not what happens to us that causes suffering. It's what we tell ourselves about what happens to yeah. us. And so in that moment, if you can extend yourself the same kindness and compassion, you would extend your friend if she'd forgot your birthday present. Yeah. Because when we think about what we say to ourselves in moments like that, you know, it's a form of emotional abuse the way we can talk to ourselves. And, and you would and never look say that to your friend, would you, who, who forgot your present on a busy day? 
Absolutely. And I, I think that translating that to job hunting, this is exactly the situation that job hunters find themselves in. Uh, on average, of course, you know, I'm generalizing here, but job hunting and being in, under frictional unemployment, which is in between jobs, is a lonely process. And the voices in the head are a real problem. People thinking that they can't network because nobody has contacted them. Mm -hmm. So they probably don't like them or they probably forgot about them or, you know, that you're telling yourself stories and you're living in that surreal world. And what you mentioned before about living in this virtual world is when people are job hunting and applying for jobs left, right and center, trapped into that mode of, um, so for job hunters, Going to seek.com or LinkedIn jobs is equivalent to Instagram or Facebook scrolling. You just scroll, scroll, scroll all day, mindlessly scrolling. Mm -hmm. You can't stop scrolling. And then you apply for jobs without really thinking about your job application and how that's translating to the reader and to that employer who is going to invest mm -hmm. in you and you just keep doing that over and over again and you see no results oh yes and, and we've all is, been there right we, yeah. I think we've all had those moments in our career when there's this desperation that emerges within us and um when we're in that mode of mindlessness as you say in this mode of unhealthy striving unhealthy proving unhealthy clinging and in my experience, when I'm in that mode, it's the root of it is low self-worth. Yeah. And the root of it for me, and this has been, you know, many, many years of, of work for me to start to cultivate this sense of self-worth that is not dependent on what I do and what I have, right? That, that to me is the work. And whenever I've found myself in that, let's call it striving, proving, grasping mode it's because somehow I've attached my self-worth to that outcome to that job title to that package to that performance review to that next rung on the <laughs> slippery pole that they call a ladder you know that that I've somehow hitched my self-worth to those things outside of myself and so there comes a real desperation and um, I really relate to that. I've been in that mode and it's taken me many years to notice when I'm doing that because, again, it's a story in my head, right, to notice that story in my head and to practice um, bringing that anchor point of my worthiness back inside of myself and unhitching it because I spent so many years of my career where it's like your heart is hitched to the roller coaster, right, that when, when the job prospects are looking good or your current role is looking good and safe, you're getting praise from your boss, you've got top talent again, you know, GE, for me it was always about having to get top talent and win these awards and it really was like living life on a roller coaster ride until I realised, my gosh, like, um, I really have some work to do here on my that my self-worth is, is not measured by any of these things. But it, it took me many years of work to get there. And, and I'm, I'll tell you, Renata, I'm on high alert right now because now I've got this book, right, and it's so easy to hitch my self-worth through. Who's going to say my book is good? How many likes am I going to get in the post? How many copies am I going to sell? And, you know, I know I'm in the danger zone again, yes. once again. And I'm really trying to be vigilant to say I'm at peace. Uh, I've written the book. 
that was my goal. I really wrote this book for me. I say that in the book. I wanted this book by my bedside table and as of last night it's there. I've achieved my goal and if it resonates with others and that's just amazing but that's not a measure of my worth but it, it is daily vigilance for me right now again. Yes, but that, you know, every time we're learning something new, we become students. And then when we become students, we become more vulnerable, right? So, uh, and, yes. and that's the, the, the very um, fragile situation of writing a book for the first time or job hunting after many years, after yes. 20 years uh, well-employed, yes. um, you all of a sudden, you know nothing. And it's so hard to also ask. I mean, you, you have no problem asking for help, but some people do. Some people oh, have yeah. problem asking for help. So Andre um, had a, uh, has a friend uh, at work who um, left and they had coffee uh, a few weeks ago. And Andre being my husband feels like he's a coach. It like it's like that Netflix series Sex Education where the son of the sex counselor thinks he's a sex counselor and he <laughs> have you seen I that too? He's like, I'm going to have coffee with my friend because he left and you know he may need some help. He goes out and the guy's like is has a Andre said he's like he has an armor around him. Mm -hmm. Right? So he doesn't want yeah. to show any vulnerability and mm -hmm. um And I think that that is very common too, you know, so and sometimes common. people come to me and they, they have a, a, a chat to me and I talk to them about 30 minutes for 30 minutes or an hour and I give them as much um, help as I can because I I'm, want to service, I want to serve people, mm -hmm. I want to support people, but I also want to show them that every time they connect with me, I'm going, it's return on their investment, I, they are going to, and they Absolutely. feel like, no, that's, okay, I've learned what I need. I don't need anything else. Off I go. And then three, four months later, they reconnect with me yeah. and they say, can we catch up again? So that four months that they missed of, you know, that's yeah. missed salaries as well. And I think it's um, interesting that people have that um, misunderstanding of that, um, uh, that need to be vulnerable. Yeah, look, I think... I resonate with everything you said and we are conditioned to armor up. You know, you know that saying that we are all saying these days, it's okay to bring your whole self to work. Well, whenever I hear that, I think, well, wait a minute, what part of me was I meant to check at the door before you said it was okay to bring my whole self to work? Because yeah. you know, when we think about it, I think we've been conditioned to actually check our hearts at the door. Mm. You know, and that I see this so often in my coaching clients that, We are conditioned to protect ourselves, to begin to believe that we have to go it alone, that we can't inhabit our vulnerability, uh, to be vulnerable is to be weak. And, and these are all, again, you know, fake, the fake news of the internal voices in our head, right? This is this constant fake news feed that we've got to just become more aware of and rather than seeing our thoughts as instructions on how to behave, we start to uh, operate with a level of discernment. And that's what really waking up is, that, that I've got this voice in my head that tells me that even in the example you've given, Renata, that I'm with a friend, that I've got to somehow put the armor on, put the mask on, keep people at arm's length, make sure that no one knows that I'm struggling, um, these stories that we tell ourselves, that we just start to notice that story and we ask ourselves, 
who would I be without this story? Who would I be without this thought that right now I've got to make sure that I look like Superman? What what might be possible for me if I could just step into my vulnerability right now and actually inhabit my humanness? Because we are not robots. I think we've been conditioned to treat ourselves and each other like robots by by the way the world of work is. But it's a it's a big fat lie, right? We're human. We, we've got hearts. Our hearts break. Um, It doesn't diminish our professionalism. No, it Mm. enhances our professionalism because we we all know that the best leaders that we've ever worked with are those that inhabit the vulnerability and therefore give us permission to do the same. And, you know, the best leaders I've worked for are leaders that I've seen really be human with me, be real with me, and therefore I have permission to be real with them. And you just need to look at the mental health statistics. 25% of us at any time are, are in struggle, are in real struggle. And if you're in a workplace where that struggle has to be kept on the lowdown, it's corrosive to our well-being, it's corrosive to our productivity, it's corrosive to our relationships, and it's just, um, I think, a way of leading that's that's done and dusted. You know, now's the time for human leaders. So um, this podcast has an interview with the CEO of Coco Black, Nick Georges who is an amazing person. We work together at Monash University. He's a former senior exec with Nestle, Mondelez, and he managed the Monash Innovation Food Innovation Center for a few years. And now, now he's a CEO of Coco Black. And at the beginning of COVID, he wrote an open letter to CEOs, very vulnerable, about mm-hmm. the struggles of managing under COVID and lockdown and the pandemic. I mean, Coco Black survives on people feeling absolutely you know turned on by the 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 scent and the beautiful stores that they have you just want to eat chocolate every time you walk Mm -hmm. by um, a cocoa black store so uh, melbourne um, being under lockdown for them was really heartbreaking and he wrote this beautiful letter and then i read it and i interviewed him straight away and i think that that is a perfect example of somebody who is a senior leader who is completely fine and in touch with his vulnerability um, managing that those two things very well and not afraid i mean it, it and i was just the more i think about it the more i think how courageous it was to print that letter because many employees would probably have perceived this, oh, you know, he's a CEO, does he know, you know? Mm. And I have not seen any other CEO do what he did. Um, but if you go to his post on LinkedIn where he um, uh, posted the letter, the best thing about that post is to see his staff writing under it and saying, you know, how grateful they are to work for him. Oh, I'll go and read that. I hadn't yeah, seen that. it's awesome. I, I think... If we want to create, you know, courageous cultures where people have permission to show up and, and be seen even when they're in struggle, then the, the way the CEO shows up is everything, isn't it? Yes. And that sets the tone. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's a, that's a great example of a CEO who's willing to inhabit his vulnerability and, and therefore create a culture where others can do the same. But for others, you need to um, practice self-fidelity. How do we do it? How can one practice self-fidelity? Give us some tips for those who um, haven't read the book yet. (laughs) 
So there's lots and lots of ways to practice self-fidelity and, and definitely my thinking on it is that we must make the practice our own. And so I offer up lots and lots of very practical ways that we can cultivate, embed, refine our own self-fidelity practice. One of the ways to start, I think, is to start to tune into the voices in our head. I think that's the most powerful and the foundation of the practice is this idea of waking up, as I describe it. It's really the threshold to the practice of self-fidelity. And so by just becoming more aware that you are not the thoughts in your head, that you're not the voices in your head, that the thoughts in your head are not instructions on how to behave. And that we have choice, that we have agency. So I think the best way to start is by noticing what is that script, that record that keeps playing in your head? What, what are the things that you tell yourself? How do you speak to yourself? And to what extent are those thoughts and those instructions uplifting you? And to what extent are they dragging you down? Are they corrosive to your health, your well-being? To what extent do they pull you away from your true nature? And so that would be probably my, my number one tip is just start to tune in. Uh, I think we all know um, who we are at our core when we're at our best. I think we can all have this sense of who am I being when I'm being most myself? And when I work mm -hmm. with my coaching clients on this question, who are you being when you're being most your, yourself? What is the state of being that you feel is the most positive and powerful for you to embody? And there's always commonality. You know, it's a state of being calm, of being caring, of being open, of being connected, of feeling uh, enlivened. And so I think once we start to notice these stories in our head and how they push us off track, how they can actually trigger these really unhelpful emotions such as frustration, anxiety, loneliness, um, desperation, this clinging, this proving, this unhealthy striving, all of these modes of being that often get triggered by the stories in our head, we can notice and we can practice through breathing, through meditation, through lots of other techniques. How do I get myself back into that way of being that's going to be far more resourceful and we can all practice that and it, it's not a practice where you kind of someday you wake up and you kind of cross the finish line and forevermore you're going to inhabit your most positive and powerful state and no it, it's a ongoing practice of yeah. remembrance and reconnection and you know I've been doing these practices for a long time and I still of course get triggered and caught by the stories in my head and in those moments because I've been doing it for a while I have awareness okay my shoulders are up my jaw is tense I'm having all these thoughts I'm I'm I, I'm in I'm in a triggered state how do I use my breath just to come back to the moment and how do I use this discernment to say okay let me just challenge this story in my head right now let me just turn down the volume and let me just ask myself is that really true excellent so that that's my tip and um, for specifically for job hunters, mm. you wanted to give a few tips for job hunters. Yes. I'm, I'm assuming you've job hunted during oh, your career. Many times you? have okay. I job hunted. Because it seemed like such a, you know, glamorous career, but people don't see the difficulties uh, in between. 
in yeah, getting there were the lots roles of times in between yeah i've i've been my role has been made redundant three times in that career over you know that oh i'm so glad years. you mentioned it i have some clients that have been made redundant twice three times and they feel yeah. defeated there you go look at you yeah within that three times i've had to reinvent pick myself up dust myself off and back in the arena and Each time, it's actually in retrospect, not always in the moment, but in retrospect, it's always been a really positive moment of recalibration and resetting, really. And I think the things I would say is uh, if you're job hunting, if you're between jobs, definitely use it as an opportunity to really get clear on what does success mean to you. I, I think it's so easy to get caught up in this um, this kind of climbing of the ladder, you know, that I've got to get to the next rung and the next rung and this is what success looks like. It looks like this job title with these keywords, with this salary package, with this bonus percentage, um, with this sort of brand in this location, with this job structure, you know, we, we get so, I think, rigid in our thinking about what does success mean. I think the first thing I would suggest is that just loosening the grip of all of that and, and just stepping right back from all of that and think what what does success really mean to me what does uh, a working life that can be well lived mean to me at this moment and you know often um for my coaching clients when we zoom out from the next job and the next opportunity that has to tick certain boxes and we zoom out to maybe a two or three or five year horizon what often emerges is that there can be a bit more flexibility that actually if I figure out really what really lights me up when I'm at my best I'm being really creative or when I'm being at my best I'm leading people or I'm not leading people and so if we zoom out to a three-year horizon maybe my salary is going to take a little dip but then as I recenter and reorient towards the things that I, that I really love doing then over the long term my um, earnings just lift up and up and up. And I, I do believe there's a real ceiling on our earning capacity when we're stuck in these jobs that actually the jobs that don't light us up. And so using space between jobs as a, as a time to ask those hard questions, yes. what does success really mean for me and my family in the next three to five years at this stage of my life? How do I really reimagine success? How do I get back to the things I love doing? Because, I, you know, we spend 90,000 hours working in our lifetime and the number one regret of the dying is that, you know, I didn't do what, what really lit me up, that I wasn't true to myself, that I followed in the footsteps of my parents or what, whatever. And I think using this chance to pivot, redefine success, uh, reconnect to what really you are at your essence and starting to chart a course that's going to get you closer to that even if it means if you can afford it depending on your you know your financial situation a short-term hit on earnings to get a longer-term gain and I spent so many years in those high-powered executive roles really tied to a certain package a certain salary number and now that I'm out of that game and I'm growing my own business and my my, my career looks differently it, it really I, I really kind of kick myself that I spent so many years with such a narrow scope of what jobs I would consider and it was all based really on on the package what what that I had to earn another five or ten or fifteen k on what I earn now in order to consider a move and that just really created such a narrow um, 
playing field for me and it was yeah. all just a figment of my imagination because actually we can get by on a little bit less and we can we can find different ways to save money or you know start a side hustle or other ways to make ends meet and I, I think that's been my big learning um that the 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 more we can focus on our higher order aspirations for the sort of working life we want and the more flexibility and lightness we can have around the other stuff, the more opportunities emerge that, that really get us to a working life that can be truly well-lived and a working life that really not only nourishes us but nourishes the people we love the most, right, because we all know the the huge costs of being in a role that's that's soul destroying, and yes. and often the people in the that that suffer the most are are those people that love us the most that we I come know. home to every night. I know it's very sad. You use the word reset. I don't know if you know this, but um, my um, mini course that I do is called Reset Your Career. Ah, yes, it's, I think I've seen that. Yeah, the- and it's um, it's really. Um, a program where I, it's not my coaching course. It's a program to really just press reset. You've just been made redundant or you have been job hunting for a month and months and you have just hit a wall and don't know what you do. Just do this mini workshop on demand and a 31 day action plan to right. build yourself a, a productive and successful routine. So it's a course, so it sets a milestone, and then it's 31 days of actions, one day at a time, so that you don't feel that overwhelmed. Okay, let me just activate everything in this course. You don't have to worry about it. You sit down, you listen, and then you know that for 31 days, you're going to get one action a day to build yourself a routine. And I think it's really important to, um, like you said, um, reevaluate your your vision for the future and what you actually want out of life you you may not have asked for that redundancy some people are now booking sessions with me to consider voluntary redundancy did three sessions last week for the first time great it's such a great investment just sit down with me and let's brainstorm just get it out of your head and let's sit down and imagine some different scenarios if you do accept a voluntary redundancy lots of companies are offering now at the end of the year and one person decided for no, one person decided for yes to apply for it. And the other one was still undecided when we finished the session, but at least we brainstormed everything and they were going to talk to partners and, and friends and what else. But it's so important. And there is a podcast that I'm going to put in the links below with uh, Paul Burrows, who um, left BHP and and we we became friends when he left and and I was like when is Paul going to find a job I used to leave my kids with him because I was you know a working mother with um two little boys probably same as the boys your boys now and studying full-time and I would just leave the, the kids there with Paul and I did that like for a year and a half I'm like Paul's not in a hurry to find a job is he <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's nice to take our time. These are big decisions, right? He made the best decision. He ended up having a second career that was completely different from his first career. He didn't ask for the redundancy. He didn't want it, but he reinvented himself. And he has this very great philosophy, personal philosophy about um, people living on a budget and 
regardless of what budget you live on, you know, you can be miserable or happy. And I know, you probably know this as well, you can be miserable on a $1 million salary. Absolutely. And And I would say there's probably more likelihood. I mean, what I've seen in my career is the executives that um, really have tethered their self-worth to those big, big packages and those big, big bonuses, there's no escape. That For many of these individuals, I I got this real sense that that over the years they've attached so much of their self-worth to those numbers, um, particularly when you get so senior that, you know, your salary is, you know, part of the um, publishing the annual report, for example, and everyone knows there's something that happens to the human psyche that, you know, I've got to maintain or, or lift this number year on year. And that can be so damaging to our health because we all know that there's been countless studies that say, you know, money's not going to buy us happiness or health or um, loving relationships, but we find ourselves stuck. And I think there's something that's really almost addictive and magnetic about these big packages. And I certainly, you know, at the height of my corporate career, I was on a pretty nice package and I, I certainly felt that um, pull of, no, I've got to maintain or lift this on this number which now many years later and um now being at a different earnings level for the last few years as i'm growing my own business uh, i can just see how arbitrary that number was and how actually meaningless it was and but yet there was so much for me at the time pinned on that meeting or exceeding that number and i look back and think my gosh um what were you thinking? Because I'm so much happier now and um, I'm not earning anywhere near as much for the moment, but my gosh, I wouldn't trade where I am for the world. Yeah. Very well. I'm so happy we did this. Thank you. I can't wait for everybody else to listen to it as well. We'll be together with the book, the book launch and the podcast. That would be fantastic. Brilliant. Yes. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about self-fidelity. It's, you know, been in my head for three years now. And so to be able to talk about it's just so wonderful. Am I your first podcast? You're my second podcast. So I'm really just warming up. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to tell you uh, before we go, uh, understand our power and what we are up against. That's the page for me. The law of systems dynamics tell us that in any system, the power of any one individual is dwarfed by the strength of the system and the dynamics within that system. Mm -hmm. That's where I step in. That is just a, I I couldn't have worded it better, you know, but I love that, um, that page. Yeah, because there is a system and a structure to recruitment and selection, and the system is there, and it dwarfs the candidate, and I am there to to help them. So I actually printed that page, only that page, except that I can't find it because it's here in this. Oh well, yes. I will. I will put it in my vision board. I'm going to. Maybe I just should type it over and. Yeah, like it is, that page is for me, like the man in the arena is there and that page will be next to the man in the arena. Oh, wow. That's how much I like that page. Love it. That's an honor. And I I think it took me many years to figure that out, that, um, yeah, that the the power of these 
invisible forces at play, right? And often yeah. when we're applying for jobs, those forces are dehumanising forces, right? Yeah. So yeah. dehumanising. And to work with awareness of those forces, it doesn't mean that we don't have power within those systems, but but I think we've just got to have our eyes wide open to the dynamics at play and using those dynamics as, as wherever we can to our advantage. You know, I think about Tai Chi, you know, when you use this energy and you maybe redirect it, you use it to your advantage, but you do it with eyes wide open rather than, you know, this kind of deer in the headlights saying, why is this happening to exactly. me? So and, it's and about adding, awareness. Adding weight to your side of the, the game, I think, is important too because the system or the structure is heavily weighted. There's, a, you know, um, support and expertise and resources, energy. And then there you are. If I or, or a book like yours can come in and give you a different perspective and give you additional energy support experience knowledge then Mm. it just keeps putting evening out the imbalance that's what i like and and then you know sometimes i see people uh, i I walk i walked on the beach the other day and there were so many people reading a book which is a very big um bestseller at the moment i'm like don't read that book (laughs) it's not a good book (laughs) It's not going to. Well, I can give you, you copies of Self Fidelity oh. if you just walk around the beach. Just swip. I know. I was just swap it out. Selling it on Brighton Beach. <laughs> <laughs> a little cart with an umbrella. Swap you can books. sell drinks. <laughs> give me that crappy one and read this one. He said, "There is so much bad information and advice out there." And then I will dig in and sort of read. Who is this author? What has this author ever done? And that person never had a job or has never been in the corporate sector and is giving advice about how to go to job interviews. And I'm like, who are you to talk to thousands of vulnerable people that don't have jobs? You in the Silicon Valley, who is a startup entrepreneur, has never applied for a corporate role. I'm like, don't say that. There was this one article that I reviewed on my um, life coaching and I said, do not pay attention to this guy. He's saying, if the person doesn't show you their mission statement in the first day, you walk out and you don't come back. And I'm like, no, people have real jobs and they need money. You don't walk out because someone didn't show you the mission, you know, like that sort of um, advice. Um, Black and white. Black Mm. and white is really, and I, I, I think that whenever I can give my followers recommendations of good things to read, good things to do, that's what I do. I'm really solid on what, you know, you should invest your time and money and energy into because we don't yeah. have time for everything else. It's Oh, no. No, we're near. I mean, it's just overwhelming the amount of content. And I, I think, you know, the the voice in my head during the three years of writing this book at times said, you know, you're not a psychologist, Cassie. Are you sure you're qualified? And so I did make sure that I, I had psychologists. Luckily, I have a fabulous network of people who are doctors and psychologists. And when when they were giving me the feedback, you know, this is really a, a great book, Cassie, that it really, um, that was a final thing I needed to hear from a duty of care perspective. So I, I take my duty of care very, very seriously. And I was so careful not to include any in the, anything in the book that I hadn't directly implied in my life and know is not based on research and science. And so um, what I say about the practice of self-fidelity is that 
whatever I say, don't take any of any of it to be true, even though I know it's all very well grounded, um, well grounded in research, but try it, you know, put it in your own life and, and see and adapt and see if it works for you and adapt it and evolve and, and make it your own. And um, I've been getting great feedback that the book is really practical and really mm. helpful. So I look forward to hearing maybe from some of your listeners about how they've applied the practice of self-fidelity and the difference it's made in their working lives. We will put all the links in the show notes. And in my introduction, I'll make sure that I mention that as well. Make sure that people follow you on LinkedIn, Facebook, and buy the book. Fantastic. Okay. And I will cover shipping. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I will mention that. So you're, you have a code for us. Thank yes, you. job hunting. You can put it in the show notes. But if you use that code, then shipping is on me. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cass. You're very welcome. Thank you. I hope you found this episode useful and that it helps your job hunting and career plans. Don't forget to subscribe and follow me on social media and on your favorite podcast app. And please join the Reset Your Career community so I can send you free tools and resources to make your career advancement more successful. See you next time.